0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: Thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. A long-overlooked doctrine of scripture is that of providence and its relationship to God's will being carried out in time and eternity. Many will acknowledge the doctrine of creation, but somehow discount the fact that what the triune God has set in motion will be accomplished, regardless of what appear to be obstacles and impediments. Because so much of evangelicalism concentrates on the New Testament, as being enforced, with the old being relegated to background material, much of what the major and minor prophets proclaimed and foretold gets bypassed or ruled out as flyover country. In other words, read it if you want to, but don't expect to understand it. And this is detrimental to a full-orbed biblical faith. Calcedon Vice President Martin Salbretti joins us today to discuss the implications of his most recent essay, Consummation. In it, he gives a potent analogy as to how God moves throughout history and the culmination or consummation of all things, just as God ordained it from the beginning. Thanks, Martin, for agreeing to this discussion.
0: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Okay, so now... I don't want listeners to refrain from reading your essay, which appeared in the Calcedon publication in July of 2023, Arise and Build, but I would like them to get a taste of your overall thesis, that Christ's victory will not be a partial one, nor in line with much of the pessimism that abounds in the church today, no matter what eschatological position people talk about.
0: Yeah, in a nutshell, We're saying that there's uh, no limit to the victories of Christ here in history. There are scriptures that warn us against limiting the Holy One of Israel or declaring that his uh, arm is waxed short. And this is an area where we say that approach is incorrect. And it actually extends to all elements of uh, all the persons of the Trinity, for that matter. We'll restrict the Father's election, we'll restrict who the Son's going to justify, and we'll restrict the scope of sanctification by the Holy Spirit. So the entire Trinity can often be implicated in our tendency to limit things. And what they're limited by is our experience and uh, our notion of how things are going to go. And uh, we have to then grapple with the fact that God really is the one who deals with impossible things. Right. We accept that uh, when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. The answer is, yeah, that's impossible with men. And so we're not saying this is something that men bring into the picture. We're simply saying these things are not impossible for God. And uh, therefore, we have to take that stance of the sovereignty and the absolute omnipotence of God. And then the only other question is, if the word says that these things will happen, uh, are we going to shave away at the word of God because our faith is being put on trial? We cannot accept a victory as great as and grand and as amazing as might be suggested in scripture. And therefore we, we, uh, step on the brakes, tap on the brakes and say, well, let's not go crazy here. That, that l- amount of victory doesn't make a lot of sense. We need to load it with some reason, some um, defeat. In other words, right. be re- realistic. Usually it's argued, uh, realism against the prophecies of scripture that we need to be realistic. But when we're saying realistic, it means we not, we need to have man and his sin be a determining factor over and above God's power, uh, which is a power unto salvation, power of God unto salvation, as Romans 1.16 puts it. And when you put these two, pit these two things together, uh, you have a fundamental problem. If you're saying that the sin of man is a more important fact and a more, a fact that governs reality and history more so than any other fact that God might bring into play when he intrudes in history with his Son, with his Spirit. I think at that point we are limiting the Holy One of Israel, and uh, we're going to not see God's power in a lot of other areas where it should be manifest. Uh, and, And that is unfortunate because it means we have a smaller God, the God we worship, therefore is a godling. Uh, that's strong language to use, but we need to treat him like he really is the blessed and only potentate, as uh, Paul says. But we, if we figure that men as potentates can resist God uh, on every count and, and block his program at every stage, so he's stuck with what we deliver and what we give and what we permit, then our, our God is the puny God. Right. <laughs> has, some uh, movies to put it. And that's exactly the, the thing we want to resist. We want to say uh, if we, we're going to get anything right, it's going to be the picture of God. If we're going to err, we should be erring on the side of God's omnipotence, not arguing for his weakness.
1: So let's talk about that a little bit. In thinking about it, it's like people don't want to believe that the entire world will be converted, which is part and parcel of what you're talking about in your essay. And I don't think they're comfortable with that idea. Now, do you think it's because in the 20th and 21st century, we always have antagonist and protagonist and you're never quite sure who's going to win. Instead of the fact is what you just mentioned that we pray thy kingdom come in earth as it is in heaven. So like, do people who pray that think? Yeah. Well, if it's too good to be true, it probably is.
0: We have the whole issue really of uh, walking by sight. It's very tempting to do that because we can become experts on what we think we see in history as we look at man's hand. That's why uh, post-millennialists of the uh, late 19th and very early 20th centuries who were walking by sight, and this many did, they said, oh, look at all these wonderful things that are happening out there. Uh, two world wars were enough to torpedo that kind of optimism that was premised on human progress as revealed in history, uh, in, a, in current events. You're not supposed to get your doctrine from current events. Those post who stood strictly and only on the authority of Scripture, what the prophets said, regardless of what was going on in history, those were the ones that their faith was confirmed, and they're willing to say, yes, you can get a conf- fully converted world at the end of history, even if two world wars have uh, intruded into the mix. Because God's bigger than the two world wars. He can still convert this world. It's not a barrier to him. It's not a barrier to him to lose all of mankind except for eight people. It's right. not a barrier for him to to uh, have only 12 disciples after a whole bunch left because the sayings were very hard and couldn't be handled. God rejoices in taking the weak to confound the strong. But we point at the strong. say, like, Oh, look at this, 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 this. It's a habit that the uh, disciples were into when Jesus told them about the temple going to be destroyed, not one rock on top of another. And they went in to point out, look at all these fantastic buildings, this stunning assembly here that's been put together. What do you mean? How could this possibly all fall apart? And exactly. The, in other words, they, they, they were looking with their eyeballs. And eyeballs have problems because, first, God made the eyeball. (laughs) So you better figure out who made the eyeball before you start attributing too many things to it. But God also made his word and issued it, and he says it is more pure than silver refined seven times in the fire. Your eyeballs aren't that good as the silver refined seven times in the fire. I'm sorry to tell you, you can be an expert in history and a fool with Scripture. Yes, Uh, and uh, but someone who stands by the Scripture, he's going to be confirmed ultimately in his confidence. We have this confidence, as the Scripture says, and uh, that confidence is an important one because it relates not only to us personally, but to our families and ultimately to our cultures and to the nations and the world at large because he's the Savior of the world, not just of a small group of people, but ultimately he's going to stand forth revealed as the Savior of the entire world. So that there is no domain that's outside of his government. The government is going to be on upon his shoulders and the increase of that government and of his peace. There should be no end. So it'll continue to grow till it cannot grow any long far farther. So what we have to do when we play the walk by sight games, we have to dial back all these scriptures and say, no, not quite. No, not that one. Don't take that. Nothing to see here. Please walk away and, and, uh, then we start name-calling. Just today I saw a bunch of folks on a website, part of Facebook, talking about the post-millennial loons. I don't mind being a loon for God, but <laughs> they're being a loon for man, and I think I'm going to be the better off with the deal. But they don't even want to talk about the scriptures, see, because yeah. it's the scriptures that open all this stuff up. So what Dr. Rashtuni was doing and a few others, a handful of men, really, that stood against The tremendous tide to say, walk by sight, please, walk by sight. Forget these scriptures that talk about victory. Not a single scrap of scripture, not one jot or tittle should be allowed to uh, be diminished in the slightest in terms of its impact on what the future is going to be. If it speaks to the future, it is authoritative. It is canonical. It will define the future. God defines the future, and man does not. So man, in a sense, is really along for the ride. (laughs) But he thinks he's in the driver's seat. Uh, but it turns out that it's a uh, autonomous vehicle that God puts us in, <laughs> so to speak. And it's going to go where, where God wants it to go.
1: Let, let me and just I- ask you this. Do you, th- I was going to say modern man's attention span is so short that if it doesn't happen in their lifetime or at least the foreseeable future, it's not going to happen. So yes, that's stated in glowing terms that the whole world will be full of the knowledge of God, but we know that's not likely. And it sounds like what you were saying about the apostles, they kind of had that. So I can't really just say that this is a modern man situation. Do you think that we have put too much attention on us and not enough on God so that people say, well, I don't see it. And I've been around 40 years, 50 years, 60 years.
0: Exactly. If man is big, God becomes small in your estimation. But when God is big, then... Man is exactly what Isaiah 40 says. He's the dust of the balance and nothing and less than nothing. So, in other words, what man's doing, including world wars, are inconsequential to the plan and program of God. Uh, God's plan is going to be manifested in history. Man's plans are all going to be either aligned with God's plans or brought to nothing, uh, brought to a ruin. So, you know, we can plan what we want, but the Lord sets the steps, right? Nineveh, was not supposed to be saved so far as Jonah was concerned. So he would hightail it to Tarshish, the opposite direction. And he, guess what happened? He ended up back in Nineveh preaching full of seaweed <laughs> and fish spit, and he <laughs> ended up converting the entire nation. It's just a stunning thing how that whole nation uh, repented. And that's going to used as an example by Christ. He says, they repented, but you don't. He said, so where you don't expect fruit, there's the fruit. And where you should expect fruit, which is in God's people, uh, there is the disbelief, the unbelief, really. Unbelief is a fundamental problem that we face today, and we, therefore we tailor the scriptures and adjust them and manipulate them and distort them to try to justify unbelief and to justify a pessimistic outlook for history.
1: So do you think that much of the problem today stems from an embedded antinomianism That people don't, people meaning Christians, don't say God's law applied is the answer on how the world's sin will be dealt with as people embrace and convert. So if you're not going to use God's law as the means of sanctification, then you sort of have to come up with other scenarios to account for what you want to see happen in the end. And when people go, yes, we know how the story ends but they sort of make up how the story ends as opposed to how does the Bible say the story ends and what's the process?
0: That's correct. It's interesting. The uh, phrase that was on Dr. Rastoni's lips on his deathbed was from first John five, four. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Now this overcoming of the world is actually in a context from the preceding verse, kind of learn what the world is. It's what, uh, declares the commandments of God to be grievous. So what we do is we overcome in, uh, that position. We we oppose it. We say they're not grievous. Uh, and in fact, they'll be victorious. They're to be walked in. So what the Christian does to overcome the world is to walk in the commandments and declare that they're not grievous, not burdensome. Uh, and so our whole attitude toward the law determines how we're going to overcome the world. These verses form a, a pair, verses 3 and 4. They follow each other for a reason. Verse 3 about the commandments of God are not grievous is the context for verse 4 about the victory that overcomes the world, which is the world that opposes the commandments as being grievous, as being not the path to freedom or joy or liberty, but a grief to us to bear, a burden to bear. When we oppose that position, we are affirming the victory of Christ and enabling the victory of Christ because then the law is unleashed. And then the blessings of the law, which are articulated so well in Psalm 1, are realized, you know, we become like the tree planted by rivers of water that bears fruit in its season and its leaf never withers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are blessings that only come from the law of God. And so, But Christians think that the law of God is a strange thing. That's from Hosea 8.12. I wrote to Ephraim about the great things of my law, but he esteemed them as a strange thing. If you think they're a strange thing, you're more likely to think they're also grievous and burdensome and need to be dispensed with. There's going to be no victory overcoming the world at that point. Because the very thing that overcoming the world entails is to deny that the commandments are grievous, but rather are the ticket to liberty, freedom, joy, and uh, fulfillment, for that matter, for man, but also for his purpose in this world. He becomes a bearer of the law. He becomes a light. Uh, in himself, you know, he becomes a, a candle that is not to be hidden under a bushel because he's keeping God's law. He's teaching God's law. And we have that blessing right there in Matthew 5, 19. Whosoever shall loosen even the least of these commandments shall be least in the kingdom of heaven, but whosoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The greatness of God's kingdom is determined by our attitude towards his law, bringing us back to First John 5. And we treat the law as not being grievous or burdensome. So when we have an anti-law attitude, we've already cut off any hope of overcoming the world. The world, therefore, will dominate our thinking, uh, and our horizons will be clouded, and uh, we will have uh, written ourselves out of our own future.
1: So you point out in the essay that Christ came to get the law kept. And of course, with the Holy Spirit entering into people and people being born again, now they are able to have the law kept. And yet we have this whole fixation that the only things that matter are getting as many people personally saved. And I recently had an insight, Martin, that salvation is just one part of the full armor of God. It's the part that covers your head. Right. But there's all these other things, breastplate, shoes, shield, and of course, the sword of the spirit. So do you think the fixation on personal salvation then gets translated to, oh, that's what he's talking about, but just only the people who ask Jesus into their heart? Yeah, that's what's being talked about in these prophetic utterances by both the major and minor prophets.
0: Well, that's one way to try to slice away a scripture, but I'm not even sure the passage in Paul about the armor of God would allow that. After all, we're supposed to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That says more than just inward navel-gazing, as they say. Uh, that has to do with peace at large between man and God and man and man. Uh, it's the broadest possible sense, and it's through the gospel that that it occurs. So, you actually were quoting from Warfield who said that Christ came to get the law kept. And, and that's a fascinating notion. And uh, he certainly didn't come so that it would be continually bashed and destroyed and and uh, broken forever. He came to set in motion something very different that's part and parcel of the New Covenant. When we read about the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, it amounts to this, that I shall uh, write my law on their hearts and on their minds will I write them, and they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. And no man shall need to teach his neighbor, saying, "Know the Lord," for they shall all know Me, from the least to the greatest. So you combine two elements there. You have an element of the law, which was used to be on tablets of stone, now being written on human hearts, which then obey, uh, gains spontaneous obedience. So there's a, as the law becomes internalized. All the elements, the entirety of God's law, the written law, now is written on the heart. And then, as a consequence, as God continues to write more and more on the heart of uh, of more and more people, uh, God's law, and they obey it, and then we're seeing the victory of the gospel. He says, no man needs to uh, teach his neighbor, saying, no to the Lord. Uh, you basically have a point where the Great Commission is no longer necessary because there's no one to evangelize anymore. Evangelism actually has a goal, believe it or not, and not just to be unsuccessful day after day after day and finally at its worst when Christ returns Rather, it has a purpose, and evangelism finally has a goal where you cannot evangelize any further. Uh, it's impossible because you look around and say, who can I evangelize now? No, everyone's churched. <laughs> there are, is no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts is the way that uh, Zechariah 1421 puts it. It's a profound little passage. People talk about, oh, the Last day's church will be full of false apostates and unbelievers— but that's not the way that Zechariah sees it. No more to the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. It will not be full of false believers and, uh, you know, con men and whatnot. That's an interesting philosophical, uh, theological model that's promoted to pro, to defend the, a pessimistic outcome in history. But boy, do these prophets not have anything to do with it. The, the, what they say says something very, very different. They talk about purging away all the dross so the silver is completely pure before Christ returns. They're talking about no more Canaanites, no more false believers. And that's something, because we know we started out that way. We started off in a very, very bad way with wolves and sheep's clothing. But there's a purging process going on. And that purging process is exemplified by fire in Scripture for the most part, the Holy Spirit and fire. And that process is going to continue until the whole world has been purged clean. Uh, You know, the John the Baptist puts it in the most interesting way. He says, the windowing fan is in the Messiah's hand and he shall thoroughly purge the threshing floor. It means completely and totally cleanse the threshing floor. There'll be no more chaff anywhere in the world, which is exactly what Daniel uh, 2 says as well. You know, the stone without hands smashes the building and everything that it was opposed to. The Messiah turns into chaff and is blown away in the wind and no place is found for it. You can't find any chaff at the end of history. It's all been blown away by the providential processes that God has set in motion through his Messiah. And I think that's a stunning thing. But we tend to be strangers to the Old Testament law. Like you said at the outset, people are told, read the New Testament. Stay away from the Old Testament unless it's Psalms, possibly, and some practical stuff from Proverbs. Uh, Otherwise, steer clear. Uh, And I think this is a big mistake because Jesus was walking in terms of, and he was a personification, if you will, of the law of God. He's the law incarnate. He's God incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity. And he came for a purpose, And it's interesting that in Isaiah 49, it says, it's too light a thing for you to just save Israel. Behold, I make you a light for all the nations. So much more expansive than just being a Jewish savior, he's supposed to be a worldwide savior.
1: Right. So it seems to me that people don't totally discount the prophets. I mean, we'll say a lot of prophetic utterances, like you pointed out, you know, the names of Jesus, wonderful counselor, and the the extent of his government, there'll be no end. We hear that, that like, as you pointed out, the heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. But then the rest of it, we go, I don't understand that. It must have applied for a long time ago. And it's really not important for me to know it. Where does that attitude come from? After all, they carry their Bible to church. They don't just carry New Testaments mostly. So where does that attitude that I don't have to understand?
0: this? That's a strange attitude because Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, all these things happen to them, the Old Testament, as examples unto us, so we could learn thereby. And one of the examples that we can get from them, and this is using the wording of a Charles Hodge, he says, uh, respecting the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. He said to the hundreds of thousands of people to whom those prophecies were made known, not a single person, as far as it appears, interpreted them correctly. That means that you can have a hundred thousand people all in agreement and all be wrong. So th- th- that I think is a hazardous uh, notion. Uh, to the law and the testimony, they speak not according to these is because there's no light in them. And this includes not only the ethical requirements of God's law, which tells us how to walk, but also what to believe, the testimony as well. And so the Old Testament prophecies are very, very important. I don't think there's a such thing. I know we use the phrase minor prophets. I think that probably is a catastrophic error because we can figure ah, minor stuff in the Word of God. Uh, that's not the way the scriptures points out. Uh, the Scripture treats itself in a much more different way than that. Even the least of the commandments, and I've spoken on this many times, which has to do with what to do with when you find bird eggs on the ground, it has not the same promise attached to it as the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. Namely, if you obey it, your days will be long in the land that the Lord God gave you. So there's a unity to the law of God. There's unity to the prophetic uh, uh, utterances, and they start all the way back in Genesis three, and they become more profound as we move along. It's in uh, right after the flood, uh, right, at, and then in Genesis twelve, it's uh, repeated again about all families on earth shall be blessed in these in your seed. All the nations shall be blessed in him. All the families, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed in him. You just go over and over, and this notion is repeated over and over again, Old and New Testament. And every time we uh, see it, guess what the theologians do? They rush in and say, oh, if you see the word all, it's not all. I'll tell you how dangerous that position is. If I would say, therefore, that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in uh, Jesus bodily, as is asserted, I believe, in Colossians, and I say, well, that's not all the Godhead. In that case, I've suddenly demoted Christ, and now I'm teaching subordinationism, and Christ might become a creature or something less than the second person of the Trinity and not co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So once we start messing around with words like fullness and all, uh, we can have a problem. There better be a very, very strong uh, contextual clue that that can be limited. Not just my eschatology requires me to limit that. That is not a legitimate basis for limiting the Holy One of Israel and His Word. That's a dangerous precedent, and you're going to it's going to extend every time you see the word all, and you might end up seeing the word all, say, 200 times in the Bible. If you've then discounted all of them, or most of them, <laughs> I don't even know what to say there, uh, if they've all been discounted, uh then what language could God possibly use to express a complete conversion of the world? We don't know. We have played Orwell's game and shifted the words around and subverted their meaning so that we can't ever get to a converted world in Scripture because we've doctored the language. We've subverted the language. We've said all doesn't mean all. Fullness doesn't mean fullness. Every man doesn't mean every man. Uh, that, by the way, is in Psalm eighty-seven. Each and every man shall be born in Zion. Is in that fourth or fifth verse. That's the actual reading uh, in, in the particular way that that uh, idiom is used. Is we translate it correctly in Esther one-eight, but there it is sitting there in Psalm eighty-seven, talking about Babylonians and Egyptians, Rahab and Philist- Philistines, all being born in Zion. And, and then this is each and every man shall be born in her. There's a promise again of a totality. And then we have to do what. Oh, well, we have to fix that Psalm. It's, it's misworded. We have to, uh, backpedal on what God actually said. So we become God's apologists because we say God says this, but we look at the world and say, how, how can that be? So we have to defend God from the charge that he's overly optimistic. And this defense of God really is an attack on his word in order to try to make him not look good, not look bad. But really we're the ones not looking good for not standing up for the scripture as written. It's yeah.
1: almost that we are living out this idea of being ashamed of what the scripture says. And so that's why we have to sort of become God's marketing advertising agents.
0: Yeah, there's like an embarrassment about the power of God unto salvation. We can accept the idea that there's foolishness in the gospel, but we think it's literal foolishness to believe that the gospel is truly that omnipotent that can convert the entire world and that God can elect everyone and Jesus can, can and I'm talking about everyone living see the world is conceived of as everyone who's alive once you've gone to, to be gathered with your fathers you're out of the picture you're not in the world anymore so when we talk about a saved world we're talking about the world of the living not those who have passed out of the world uh, their estate is fixed if we didn't hold to that so we would cross over into uh, the heresy of total universalism which means that Hitler and Mao and all these others are going to be saved uh, this is not scriptural at all right but we don't argue for that we argue merely that the process by which the holy spirit is being poured out on all flesh there it is again all flesh will not cease until every person has had god's spirit poured out on them uh, that's alive at the end of history there's a and by the way the holy spirit being poured out is efficacious we even make that a point of calvinism right the efficacious call of the spirit it cannot be resisted the irresistible call of the Spirit. So, the, because it's also then acting in concert with the election of the Father and the justification of the Son, and the call of the Spirit to sanctify and call us into His kingdom. And we're not just adopted, as important as that is. But in First John five four, the victory verse says we're also begotten. There's a supernatural thing going on there apart from being adopted. We actually are begotten in uh, in a parallel but not equivalent sense to how. The, the son of God was begotten by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're begotten by the power of the Holy Spirit too, but we're not obviously parts of God at all. We're creatures, forever right. creatures. But, but that begottenness is there in the, in John and we have to take it seriously. It's part of what makes the victory possible that whatever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And that means that if everyone's ultimately is begotten by God, then God's the mover and shaker in history. And our reticence to accept that or our pessimism and saying, "Nah, that'll never happen, that, again, is reflecting on us, not on Scripture. Yes. Now, what needs to happen, Andrea, is that the folks who disagree need to actually then sit down at the table and uh, address the Scriptures and go back and forth and do what Bonson called hand-to-hand exegetical combat, work it out. But that's not what happens. What happens, rather, is that everyone mucks one another, and mucks the idea, and that's what I see continually in Facebook. Because an idea, uh, we've 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 gone so far away from the Puritan position that the notion of the the victory of Christ is a, kind of an alien idea. As if who, where'd that come from? That's impossible. We've, all we've been ever taught is uh, increased apostasy and evil until it gets to its worst. And that's what, we're, that, and then Christ comes back to show that flesh can't get there. Well, we've never said flesh can get to the kingdom of God either. we know there's the work of the Holy Spirit overcoming the flesh, overcoming the world, overcoming our tendency to treat God's commandments as grievous. And therefore, instead of that, we come to a point in time when God's commands are extolled and are praised, and his word is magnified by everyone. And that's kind of a hard thing to explain to folks that are used to to a very crabby outlook, I would
1: say. Right. Um, I think of it as the uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, where Bullwinkle says, we'll be lucky if we lose. (laughs) It's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So here is where I think we get into the trap of not believing what it says, what the scripture says, because we've abandoned the study of doctrinal theology for the average person. As soon as you acknowledge the father's election, as soon as you acknowledge the providence and sovereignty of God, then you really don't have a problem with all these things taking place. Then you put yourself on the timeline and said, okay, I'm here for this part of the story. I have a beginning and I have an end, but the story continues and I'm not the story. And I think the church has a tendency to make itself the story.
0: Especially if they think they're the the last days church, because then they believe they have a special mission and a special destiny, as opposed to being, as we say, stepping stones to the future generations. Uh, And that's a problem because uh, there's a spiritual pride in that. For those who say, well, you guys believe in the church is going to be victorious over all things, that's proud. I would say no, because we don't attribute it to the actions of the church. We attribute it to God alone. Um, God's the one who is the mover and shaker in history. If he can use us, that's fantastic, but he doesn't need us to achieve it. Uh, He's appointed us to do our task, but if we are not faithful, he will just have our bones bleach in the desert like he did the unfaithful generation in the book of Numbers and start with something new if he wants to. I remember in the early 1980s when Dr. Douglas Kelly made the comment when he was t- uh, teaching at Calcedon Chapel in Vallecito. He says there's no reason why a light f- from God can't suddenly dawn on the African continent and overtake anything ever achieved in Europe or America. He says God can do it. And we're not going to expect that because we think we're the end all of that process. We're the pinnacle of history. And that, again, is a form of snobbery to think that. And so when he mentions Africa in particular, a lot of people go, ha, 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 that's ridiculous. No, it's not. <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of things that looked ridiculous until God actually made them true and used them for his purposes. It's ridiculous to beat an army up with a jawbone of an ass. It happened. <laughs> so, right. But it's ridiculous to man. The foolishness of man is uh, it's it's not going to play in God's universe. He's bigger than all that. And all we're doing is showing how weak we are in our faith. Uh, and that's why Warfield, I think, is right when he says if you have uh, weak convictions, you're going to have weak, hunger-bitten faith. But if you have strong, bold convictions, then you're going to stand on the promises of God, as the famous song says. And what happens when you stand on the promises? Well, you can see a lot farther in the future, and you're going to redouble your efforts, your labors, because you'll see that you're, like you said, a part of the sweep of history and you have a meaning and purpose and it's part of getting the job done. That's why David was said he would be content just to be a, a doorman in the, in the, uh, uh, God's house. That'd be a blessing to him just to be that or the under oarsman that Paul says he'd be. Even to be, have a small piece of the action of God's kingdom is a tremendous blessing, but no, Not good enough for a modern 21st century man and his ego. And I think that's part of the issue is the church has become ingrown in many respects. It thinks it's the ark of salvation. And once we go down that path, we're going to start limiting salvation to what the church itself can contain. Right. But as Dr. Rashtuni wrote over and over again, any attempt to to contain Christ in the church will result in him bursting the walls of the church because he cannot be contained. Neither can the Word of God be contained, and least of all, with our expectations of what it can achieve. That's not going to contain the Word of God either. It's going to um, burst all those boundaries. Isaiah 59 talks about a stream that is pent in that God causes to burst forward and to flow until it flows over the entire world. There's no stopping it. It's unstoppable. And I think uh, and it's inexorable, meaning it's going to grow and grow and grow until it can't grow any further. Uh And it's unstoppable because anything attempt to stop God's work will be found fighting God. And there is a losing proposition for you. Why we think that we should, I don't understand. So the church, how does it protect its turf and and stay ingrown? I think it's because then they take charge of the interpretation of those scriptures and say, this is the proper way to take these scriptures. And by the way, if you hear any post-millennialists out there, turn tail and run and stick your fingers in your ears and go la, la, la. Right. Not not, not too many people will actually engage a serious scriptural conversation uh, on the issues at stake, on the scriptures that teach it. Um, and also to see what does the post-millennials have to say with my negative passages. Here I have a bunch of verses here that seem to dictate a more pessimistic outlook. Uh, We have things like Parable of the wheat and Tares and other things on this order, or a uh, man of sin and all these things. What does the mill say? Well, normally they don't get a chance to speak to those things. (laughs) It simply said, well, here's the proofs against their position and we're done here. That's not the way to do any kind of uh, iron sharpening iron—that's mud sharpening iron—and it's not going to work because you're not actually doing your due diligence in digging into the scriptures to see if these things be so. It's not Berean to simply launch an attack or a, a withering personal criticism, or to say that's ridiculous. You know, ridiculing a position—maybe they do that nowadays. Uh, I think it's telling everyone in, of your audience should be aware that during the early creationism trials. When the creation was trying to win the debates against evolutionists in the 70s and 80s, the uh, uh, Committees for Correspondence, probably for the American Advancement of, Science, Academy for the Advancement of Sciences, they were counseling, uh, and Asimov was one of these, Isaac Asimov, uh, that it was important to, to stop engaging them and merely to mock and ridicule them. Uh, that's the proper strategy, not to dignify them, as they say, with an actual debate, because they win the debates. So what we need to do is mock and revile.
1: Right. And, Skip the and debates and just make fun of them.
0: Revilers get a special place <laughs> in both uh, the Testaments. Uh, I think in Romans, revilers is in the list of those who are not going to heaven. So I think Christians who revile need to take a close look at that uh, that issue. Word coming out of our mouth that's disrespectful. Um, I talk a lot of times with people with whose position I do not agree, but I'm very respectful in my approach to them. I often am able to get somewhere with them because they realize they're not under attack. We're trying to launch into a journey together into the scripture and let God guide. But many other people say, don't even let them get that far, because if they start getting you to open a Bible, who knows what might happen?
1: (laughs) Yeah, really. So I think this goes back to a point that I stress over and over that if we don't look at the Bible as accurate history, ultimate truth, and revelation, then we're going to insert something else. So things can't mean what they say because it doesn't make sense to me.
0: Right. We see this all the time. And the most common word I'll see when someone's just on the verge to discount a postmillennial verse, he says, of course ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, this is why this can't be. And so that, of course, is basically an invitation to join a group that agrees that, it's, of course, this can't be. How can these things be? As it's as they say. Uh, and therefore, we of course, it has to be a, a wrong interpretation. There must be some other explanation that doesn't topple our the, well, the book table over there with all the paperbacks on the rapture, for example. We need to make, continue making money with that and by the way, another thing I, I, I hate mentioning this one because it, it really doesn't reflect well on us uh, as Christians. But a lot of folks are dead set on being the terminal generation because they want to be the generation that does not die. This was how Lindsey's promise, going back to the seventies, is that this is the generation sixty nine really. Uh, you, this is the generation that will not die, that will not see death. They'll be Christians will be raptured. And so the second you turn around and, and say, "No, we're living in the days of the primitive church." There's centuries and centuries of time yet to go as the church continues to make its move uh, to convert the entire world. At that point, what I'm telling folks is, you're going to be gathered to your fathers. You're going to uh, die. Uh, And that's not something that's going to be welcome. If you've already gotten all excited about, I'm going to live and never die, well, I'm kind of raining on the parade, aren't I? And yes. not only that, and not only that, I was saying, now you're going to die, but you got a job to do on top of that. You know, you have responsibilities and duties as a Christian, uh, in terms of the Great Commission, in terms of taking every thought captive to the obedience to Christ, in terms of your family being beachhead for the Kingdom of God in its small area of domain, but it must be uncompromising. You start to go down that path, and people realize there's a world of things to be done, and we're sitting on our hands. Mm-hmm. So, not only am I uh, Telling people they're going to die, but I'm removing the things that justified the irresponsibility. Cause if they're saying, well, if we're going to be raptured, I might as well run up my credit cards and do this and that and the other. And it's happened over in history many times. And people suddenly had to come up and when we act on an irresponsible position, the, the fruit of that is, is kind of devastating for those families that suddenly have to realize, Oh my goodness, that Jesus did not come back on schedule. He, you know, he tarried of all things. Well guess what? I think he's going to be do, doing, doing a lot of that because the idea that everything's lined up for his return is based on a very dubious interpretation of scripture.
1: Right. right. The- I've actually heard a pastor who I believe may be on the road to understanding that what he's been taught all these years isn't so. In one sentence, he'll say, none of us are getting out of here alive. Of course, I believe the Lord is coming soon and it could be tomorrow. Now, those two statements... <laughs> don't make sense. And so I think ultimately, we're going to have to come to terms with these prophecies that don't include the elevator ride and escapism.
0: What they should include is the destruction of death. See, there is a point in time when there is God is even victorious over death and death itself is destroyed. But that happens after all the other enemies of God have been vanquished. And we're far from that. We have many, several billion enemies of God walking around this world right now. So we're some distance away from death being destroyed because he's, that's the last enemy to be destroyed. So the idea that there'll be a, a generation that will not die is biblical. It's asserted as much in First Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, but... The conditions for it are not that the Antichrist is around the corner and we're going to be a rapture. No, the conditions are that all the other enemies, every single last one till the very last one, have all been destroyed, and the only thing left to destroy that's an enemy of Christ and his kingdom is death. And therefore, it is inexorably the last enemy to be destroyed. Uh, and then how is it destroyed? Well, it loosens its hold on Christ's children, and the men still living cannot die. They're transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, But there is a transformation that suddenly takes place during the time during which death itself is destroyed. But there's no other events. There's no more death after that point because death is destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. And it means that if if that's the case, all the other enemies have already been made God's footstool, Christ's footstool. So the, the destruction of death is an important element in any eschatology but how you get death destroyed while there's still plenty of enemies left around doesn't work. Yes. You know, just taking that path, you have to do all sorts of insertions and injections.
1: Gymnastics. And gymnastics
0: <laughs> and uh, plastic surgery to 1 Corinthians 15, tacking all sorts of things onto it that don't belong in order to try to explain how people in the rapture don't die. How does a premature thing occur? Uh, and it doesn't really Yes. So that's the thing. We uphold the notion that death will be destroyed, but we also stick to the timetable after every other enemy of Christ is destroyed. And that gives you a completely saved world by definition, because the only people walking around on the earth are saved.
1: Yes, There are no enemies
0: of Christ at that point in time. Then death can be destroyed, and only then is death destroyed. And that means we living today are not likely to see that day Barring 2 billion or more people or maybe 3-4 yeah. billion being saved overnight.
1: Or we'll see it from a different
0: vantage point. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll see it from the heavens as a cloud of witnesses. But again, that's speculative. But what is certain is that death cannot be destroyed until all the other enemies of Christ are destroyed.
1: But- there is something that you brought up in the essay that was fascinating to me. To be honest with you, Martin, I had to read it three times because I was like, whoa, Wow. Really? You know, and and I consider myself pretty well versed eschatologically, but you or you were quoting someone. Now I can't exactly remember saying that the reason death is destroyed is because the scripture says the wages of sin is death. But if people aren't sinning, there are no more wages to be paid in that regard. And that's when death ceases.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, conclusion one could draw from several passages in Scripture. We we have this evidence from Isaiah eleven verse nine, which actually speaks of a time when uh, nature is at peace with itself, and man is at peace with nature. Children can play on the holes of asps and dangerous serpents. Uh, the lions are and the bears are eating grass like the ox. Uh, they shall neither hurt nor destroy my uh, holy mountain, for the world shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so it's the knowledge of the Lord that uh, spreads, creates this transitional passage. The actual passage in the New Testament that speaks to this would be Matthew 5.18. that, And it says, Until heaven and earth pass away, it's the first until, not one jot or one tittle, that word one is repeated twice, one jot or one tittle shall pass uh, from the law until all of them be accomplished. All of them, the jots and tittles, all have to be accomplished. It means not that they, uh, and this is Warfield and Meyer, uh, the, uh, Meyer was the great German exegete of the uh, 19th century, uh, for the New Testament Greek, uh, and he was a take no prisoners exegete, when he dig, digs into the Greek. I don't want to get too technical here, other than to say that it's correct to say that the actual uh, point that uh, triggers the heaven earth passing away is all of the law uh being accomplished, not in the sense that Jesus walked in them, but the ethical parts, everyone obeying God's law. That's why Warfield says Jesus came to get the law kept. They were making void the law of God. He came to fill the law of God. Behold, I make all uh, commandments of all, or all statutes of all straight, as it says in Psalm 119. Right after he speaks about the law being made void, he says the Messiah's mission is to uh, make all the statutes straight and make them walked in. Uh, So that actually is what's being spoken of. So when we look at Paul's discussion in Romans 6, I think it's 23, we're appealing to, uh, about the paymaster, there's a paymaster that pays us Death. We're not being paid for our sin, but by sin. Sin is laying out the payment. Here's your death that you just virtually earned. Then the question is, why would death be suspended at the end of time? One strong possibility. I'm not asserting it with absolute certainty because there's more work to be done in this area, but it's not as speculative as you would think. As you look at it, is that because of the, the domain of obedience increases, 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 uh, and the domain of actual proactive sin, not original sin, but proactive sin, sin that we ourselves do, is is rolled back. There's effects in the world from the re- the curse being reversed, and the final effect of that would be death itself being destroyed, because it's, you don't have the paymaster operating anymore. It's a technical term that Paul is using there, and quite a few scholars have looked at that and say this is a rather extraordinary passage that uh, uh, sin is a paymaster, but if sin is put out of business, death cannot be paid to anybody. And this does not seem to happen until the very end of time. So what we're arguing for is that not only does God elect the final generations, the last person there, and that Jesus justifies them so they're covered by the blood, so they're saved, but that even the Holy Spirit's work has its own victory in converting and changing and, uh, and shaping our behavior and our conduct so we're no longer actively sinning. And that's a tremendously interesting idea that the Holy Spirit itself is able to achieve something quite supernatural and stunning if you look at it and say, how could that be? Well, again, we go back to the beginning. With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Yes. By the way, but uh, this idea actually goes back to Augustine. This might surprise you to hear, because Augustine was pretty Calvinistic, and Calvin's pretty Augustinian, as they say. They both agreed on the basic idea of the total depravity of man—that the sinfulness of man penetrates all of our aspects of our thoughts and our deeds and our thinking, our cogitations, our planning. So they all would say, you know, man is a basically a sinner in many respects. So what happened when Augustine was posed the question? Is it possible for a man other than Jesus to live a sinless life? What was his answer? Well, most people say, Oh, well, obviously he said no. No, he did not. (laughs) What Augustine, Augustine said is yes, but it's not exampled, which is to say, why did he say yes? Because he said, I am not going to say it's impossible for God. Might be impossible for man, but with God, all things are impossible or uh, possible, including this possibility. So in God, it's a possibility because he is able to bring that to pass. So he said, I'm not going to tear down God's omnipotence and and, uh, sovereignty just to promote the total depravity doctrine. The total depravity doctrine is subordinate to and underneath God's absolute sovereignty over all reality. What's real is determined by God. And therefore, what is possible is determined by God. And that's a Vantillian thing to say, too. And therefore, if God says the last generation will not be uh, uh, in doing act of sin, transgressing God's law, there'll be no transgression. Or as one of the prophets puts it, that he'll remove all our tin and make us pure silver. Uh, and that's a, pro- a process. it's not, It happens historically in this world. Then, of course, all of this is possible. So what we're saying here is that a lot of post mills would say, yeah, we, we could possibly get to a completely saved world. That's a minority position among post mills, and it's been acknowledged as such. Uh, there's always been Puritans and others who've said it so. But to say the victory actually extends to the Holy Spirit's work too, not just the Son's work, that's kind of a stunning idea because yeah. it has implications. People say, well, we would maybe we also be frank with you, and, and you and I speak on this wise candidly all the time. I'm not going to argue with somebody about whether there's a completely uh, sinless world just before Christ returns if they have their kids in public school. I'm going to be talking about the, the fact that their kids are being turned over to Molech. That's the real serious issue, and I'm not going to deal with eschatology at that point if they are uh, turning their children over to Molech. So there are more important things in many respects. But when we deal with this topic, we should at least say, let the Scripture speak. Let's let's not limit the uh either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit and what they can do. The Holy Spirit's been given the most difficult job. He has to live in filthy, sinful people in our in the in the most corrupt part of the universe is the human heart. It says so in Jeremiah seventeen nine. You know, who can know it? How wicked and corrupt it is. And where does that where does our uh, Holy Spirit live to transform us and to change us and to alter us and make us like him? Capital H M in the heart. So that's the, the transformation of the human heart is a big deal. And I have some good news for everybody. The agency by which that is achieved is omnipotent. The Holy Spirit is not semi competent. He's omnicompetent and mm-hmm. omnipotent. So to say that can't happen is to say the Holy Spirit is a weakling. Our sin is greater than his power. And I think this is a near blasphemous thing to say. It's a horrible mistake, but it drags God down so low and human sin so high. uh, We better rethink ourselves because that becomes a form of humanism in its own right, putting man over God, man having his boot on God's throat saying, you're not going to change anything. Right. I think C.S. Lewis had it right. He was dragged into the kingdom of heaven, kicking and screaming. Maybe we're all going to be, the final generation will be uh, dragged into sanctification, kicking and screaming, but it's going to happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting what you just said in terms of demeaning or subordinating the Spirit, because the one eschatological position that says we're going to be raptured basically is asserting the failure of the Holy Spirit, and the Son has to come in and rescue, because obviously he didn't do a good job of convicting the world of sin Therefore, instead of the church being effective, the church leaves. I think that that should be at least examined in terms of Jesus' warning that you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit.
0: I think Spurgeon's comment on this point was fascinating. He said, The Holy Spirit would never suffer the imprecation to rest upon his holy name that he was unable to convert the world. So he saw the idea that the world cannot be converted, as an attack on the Holy Spirit's authority and power, and that the Holy Spirit would not allow that to stand. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going to prove everyone wrong. And for Spurgeon to say that is quite stunning, because he kind of vacillated back and forth between pre-mill and post-mill positions. Some of his discussions on the Psalms are stunning, in how post millennial they are, they talk about the conversion of the entire world to the last man and not a single person beyond the scope of of the uh, the, the saving power of the church and the gospel. Other times he spoke like a premillennialist with uh, talking about the catastrophe of modern uh, culture. kind of saw both things in scripture, and so he moved between the two positions quite rapidly, <laughs> quite a bit. but when he waxed post millennial he was very clear the Holy Spirit was the engine of the sanctification of the world in that the notion that he was unable to convert the world was not going to stand. And he meant the whole world, convert the whole world. So, so we have uh, scholars who've seen this over and over again in in the, from the early church on to the Puritans in particular, you get some statements out of John Owen, out of Isaiah four or five that are just uh, stunning. Uh, And uh, in how that's what I would use, uncompromising they are in standing with God's word even when their fellow Puritans say, oh, that couldn't be. Because at that point, men's theories tend to dictate a different direction than the, the raw word of God. And so we're told, oh, well, you know, we need someone to mediate the word of God to us and explain it in a way that doesn't challenge us in any significant way. So people gravitate to the churches that they're comfortable with. And if they're comfortable with defeat, then the church that teaches it and justifies defeat, will be a very comforting church. We're off the hook. But if you're in a church where you say, actually, we're on the hook for a whole bunch of things. We're on the hook for abortion. We're on the hook for Christian education. We're on the hook for the economic uh, crimes that we're participating in uh because we use American dollars, for example. These are all big things. And so it's a whole different way of looking at things. When the word of God is elevated and becomes our guide, the blueprint, if you will, if you reject it as a blueprint, then, of course, the future is going to be what the prophecy teachers say. But if the word of God is the blueprint, it might be a city four square that you're not expecting.
1: So the thrust, I would say, of your essay, which, again, I'm going to encourage people, the, the title is Consummation. You can find it on the Calcedon site, calcedon.edu, and it's featured prominently currently on our homepage. But it's really about the restitution and restoration of all things. And we're back to your word all again, and that we must take God at his word. And when we don't, then, um, we've taken our eyes away from the kingdom of God who, and the king who is able to accomplish all things and we sort of um, act as a defeated army, and we just wish this war would be over. Instead of seeing victory, then we tend to see, as you pointed out, defeat.
0: Exactly right. That's why I think it's uh, so important to grasp the notion in uh, Isaiah 2, 4, that uh, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war evermore. What's taught there is that permanent cessation of all war. Uh, same thing is taught in Psalm 72. You know, the abundance of peace shall endure till the moon be no more. Uh, there's no limits. And we're the ones putting limits on what God's word says, not God. Yes. And the uh, theologians are very good at, at, the point of a definition is to is to limit something. And that's why G- uh, rationally makes a point of saying over and over again, God will not allow himself to be defined by man. Uh, because he will not be limited by man's definition. So, when we say your God's too small, we mean uh, the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, and this is true for his purposes for this world as well. And if you think it needs to fit your puny mind, then you've really squeezed God down in uh, so that you know, he's a moist sponge now and not you know the waters filled with the knowledge of him.
1: Yes. Well, thank you, Martin. Like I said to those who are listening, if you haven't read it read it. If you have read it, go back and reread it, because I think you'll have a greater appreciation now that we've had this discussion. So thank you, Martin.
0: Very welcome. Enjoy the talk.
1: Out of the Question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of me, and I'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.